This is Brian Panish from the legal podcast, Get in the Game. Hope you like what you're hearing. And remember, sharing is caring. Subscribe if you like it. Share with others. But don't forget, get in the game. Native storytelling is basically a way to induce empathy in a group of people who may not otherwise experience it. Some people are more prone to empathy in general and others more prone to empathy towards certain groups, often groups that are similar to them, which is called like-me bias. Storytelling, along with facts, is a way to mitigate biases. For example, confirmation bias means that people take what you say and make it fit their own story. However, a good storyteller can fight through that by explaining well and creating emotion, which can allow a different viewpoint that someone may not have otherwise accepted. Now, we can measure uh, things like bias, empathy as a trait, as well as various trigger words that may increase or decrease the believability and the trust in the attorney's story. Our attorney panel for this session includes Jeffrey Bright, who has an extraordinary track record with hundreds of trials and some record-breaking verdicts, including the BP Deepwater Horizon spill. Jeffrey is a proud member of the Inner Circle of Advocates, as well as an active member of the American Associates for Justice, and Virginia Poverty Law Center's Advisory Council. Jeffrey has been an adjunct professor of law at William and Mary, Columbia, and Harvard Law Schools. Daniel Rodriguez is a California attorney with extensive experience in the field. He has broken records with two back-to-back -back verdicts of over $70 million each, and he has also taught his methods at Jerry Spence's Trial Lawyer College. Daniel has been honored as a top-ranked attorney in California. Antonio Romanucci is considered to be one of the most influential and one of the largest civil rights lawyers of our time, with a long list of accomplishments and verdicts under his belt. From his humble beginnings as a public defender in Chicago to now cases like George Floyd and several large mass torts, Tony's ambition has been driving him to try cases across many practice areas and in astute class. Get started talking about storytelling and yeah, Dan, do you want to kick us off? Um, I, I'm, we're also, well, I'm also aware that you have had a very um, big verdict recently. Congratulations on that. You want to work? Thank you. Time? Thank you. Absolutely, absolutely go for it. The last Friday to be exact. <laughs> oh, very good. So let's start. Yeah, you can start with um, kind of like your approach to storytelling, I guess, in the, in the courtroom is a good place for us to kind of kick off the conversation. Okay. Storytelling. What we do know is that bullet points don't work. Uh, Facts that haven't been sequenced in the right order doesn't work. You can take the same facts. Uh, let's say uh, we had a bunch of dominoes here, and each domino represented a fact from our case. You can put them in any order, and when you put them in a different order, they tell an entirely different story. So we want to tell our cases by way of story. Without getting into the microbiology, the bottom line is that the mind the brain, it actually releases uh, dopamine and it's a good story. Okay. And so it allows us, I know, you know, and I don't, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a biologist, I'm not a neurologist, I'm not a neuropsychologist, but that much I know that telling a good story is gonna help us connect. And at the end of the day, that's what we wanna do is connect. And there's different ways to, to tell a story. Everybody's all of us have jumped on the bandwagon of visuals and 70% of the brain is involved in one way or another. I read somewhere where the brain, the body has 13 million uh, sensory receptors of the 13 million neural receptors, 11 million of them are dedicated in one way or another to visual, to processing visual information. So that tells us visual. The problem, at least for me, is then once I learned those kind of statistics, I was tempted to go big time uh, PowerPoint. And the fact of the matter is that that's not necessary. I'm not saying not to use it. In fact, I use it. But we can tell a story and have the same effect as visual by doing what? One way to do it is... Um, to tell a story in the first person and present tense. When you do that, you draw the audience, the jurors into the scene. So how do you do that? You set the scene. How do you set the scene? 
you go to the present tense, you have your witness on the stand. And do you do that for every scene? No, you only do it for the select scenes. Opening statement, the same thing. So you switch off to, instead of you have your, your, uh, your witness say, okay, we're going to uh, go back two weeks before Thanksgiving, two years ago. Uh, we're at your house. We're at the front door of your house. We're standing there. Uh, when you look down, what do you see? Oh, I see a carpet. When you look to your left and right, what do you see? I see this. When you look down at yourself, what are you wearing? I was wearing. No, no, I, not I was. I am wearing. I am wearing this. And the most powerful sensory receptor is smell. So you ask them, what are you smelling? And they tell you. Now you set the scene. Now you can set it into action. Okay. So anyway, th that's how um, I think of storytelling in the courtroom is uh, doing, uh, setting the scene and getting the witness there. Or when you get the witness there, you get the jurors. And all of this allows us to do what? To build rapport, to um, a connection to the jurors. Uh, it resonates, the story hopefully will resonate with them at a below conscious level. And at the end of the day, it's not, you know, people don't remember what, you know, I'm sure all of us have heard this. At the end of the day, people don't remember what we told them. People remember what, how we made them feel. Mm. And the best way to make people feel is by way of story. So anyway, that's my little uh, synopsis on how I think about storytelling in the courtroom. Sure. Thank you for that. Something you um, mentioned made me think of um, when you were talking about like really imagining yourself in a first person, very um, present tense. Um, this reminds me of something that I learned back in grad school. I, I have a PhD in psychology, in fact, yeah. and something called uh, the cognitive interview, in fact. Generally, it's a technique used for um, eyewitness testimony, in fact. You, um, a traditional interview, like police kind of interview is, you know, what did you see? Go in chronological order from start to finish. That's about it. Right. The eyewitness technique, or the eye, I'm sorry, cognitive interview is much more detailed where you're asking about things such as, what about if you tell me about the story from a bird's eye view, walk me through it in a um, kind of back to front. That way you actually create a lot more detail and get a lot more information from a memory, which, and getting those details out is really kind of the crux of that, of the storytelling, which it sounds like you're saying, especially the, the relevant key very, very, very important, very, very detailed information. You said something that's very, uh, I, I want to make sure that we're all aware of this fact. Uh, of the eight most powerful words in the English language, by the way, English was not my first language. I didn't start learning. I didn't speak English until I was about eight when I started school. I didn't go to kindergarten. I missed most of my first year and so forth. So I, I'm more in tune to words than the average person. I'm a little weird, in other words. Okay, so I study things like what are the most, what are the eight most powerful words in the English language? One of them is imagine, not to be confused with pretend. Don't ask the witness how pretend you're here, because pretend means what for most of us? Fake. It's fake. It's fake, right? Pretend you're doing this. No, <laughs> you know, imagine, imagine. And I, I teach trial tactics and trial techniques. And whenever I have one of my students say, uh, pretend, I, I jump in and say, no, please, please don't use that word, pretend. Use the word imagine. You know? Anyway, I, I just wanted to make sure we were all on that same page because it, it's always a red flag for me when somebody says pretend, unless it's a defense lawyer. If he's asking it that way, that's fine with me. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much for sharing that. Um, Jeffrey, do you want to maybe continue the conversation? Like, do you follow uh, Daniel's path pretty closely, deviated much, deviating certain points? Well, I think every case is different. And I think the way I handle the cases is different. Uh, I try to imagine for purposes of the storytelling, a large party with a whole lot of people not really listening to each other. They're all over the house, but there'll be a group in the living room where someone has pulled up a chair and will start to tell a story. And people will move in, people will lean in, people will clear their ears, 
to hear a good story. And trials are a battle to me of impressions and you're managing emotions. And so imagine if you will, sitting in a very comfortable chair in a living room, leaning forward and telling a bunch of strangers a good story that they wanna be interested in. And they wanna be a part of the story if you can make them a part of the story. Jurors want to do something important and they wanna think that their job is important. And so to bring them into a story and connect to them, and that's exactly what Daniel said, you have to connect. And it's that authenticity, that trustworthiness, where they look at you, the lawyer, who is marshalling this case, and they're asking, do I want to help this lawyer? Do I want to help this plaintiff, this family? Uh, and if so, is the story going to move them to want to do it? And so I like to set them up where I will oftentimes lower my voice. So the jurors have to strain a little bit to get into what is my story. They have to lean forward. Uh, I, too, like Daniel, have been teaching trial advocacy for 17 years. And the voice is the most important tool that we have. Mm. Lowering your voice, raising your voice, using pregnant pauses. Uh, jurors during direct and cross-examination in a normal case, if there is a dead spot where there's nothing being said, there's no sound, the next sound they hear is very, very important. And so if you have a witness who's talking and doing things and then you stop, let the jury absorb that story for a second, and then you focus your next question, that next question is gonna draw them in. And how you do that and how you bring a jury into a story is again, like Daniel said, I think a beginning, a middle and an end. Jurors like to think logically. Lawyers try to be too cute. Oh, let me start here and now let me go back five years. Now let me jump forward three years. Jurors don't know the case as well as you do. They need to follow, just like he said, little dominoes. You gotta have a first one, you gotta have a second one, you have a third one. Uh, and each witness has to be a part of the story, but the jury wants to know, why am I listening to this person? Where do they fit into this story? And so laying the groundwork early in a direct examination of a witness, what, where were you? Why are we listening to you? Oh, I was sitting 50 feet away and saw something without any distractions or without anything in my way. Oh, okay, I wanna listen to this person. They have a very good view uh, and how you set them up to be a part of the story. We are, as lawyers, nothing more than uh, glorified play directors. How are we going to set up this play? What characters are gonna walk onto the stage first? What kind of visual effects are we gonna use to make the story more effective? Whether it's slides, whether it's PowerPoints, whether it's posters or easels, I use all of them simultaneously. I don't wanna be wedded to a computer to tell my story, but I do like boards. I do like 11 by 14 hard poster board. I like big poster boards. Uh, I like photographs of all types of sizes. Uh, one of the great stories of all time to me for purposes of storytelling is a great Melvin Belli story. And he had a client who had an amputation. And as the trial started, Melvin Belli had a large, looked like a leg wrapped in meat wrapping paper. And he kept it on his table throughout the trial, just wrapped in meat paper. And the jury could see it. They imagined, what was that? It's, a, it's an amputation case. Did he really bring the leg into the courtroom? And it was always there. It was always part of the visual effects of the courtroom. But in closing argument, he slowly walked over unwrap the paper and the jury not a pin drop could be heard and he pulled out a what was then an old style amputated leg fake wooden 
with a foot and he handed it up to the jury for them to feel. And he asked them to feel the pulse, the warmth, the blood coursing through the leg. And of course it was a wooden leg hmm. and they couldn't feel or see anything, but that had left such an impression for his story throughout the case. Oh my God, he's going to bring the leg out. He's going to bring the leg out. And so how you use different little courtroom techniques, whether it's photos, whether it's slides, whether it's objects, uh, uh, Kevin Benyazin, my partner, loves to show slides that are not from the case, but to make an impression on a juror. Mm -hmm. So he, we had a case a year ago where a woman could no longer put her child in a swing and push the child at the park, had a bad arm injury, couldn't lift up the child, couldn't do it safely. And he just had a random Google photograph, wasn't even a photograph, it was a colorization of a, a, a painting of a woman pushing a child on a swing. And he mentioned it to her in direct examination, threw up the slide so the jury could see it. It wasn't her, it wasn't them, it was just a child in a swing with a mother like this. And in closing argument, he just reminded the jury of the things that she couldn't do. And the slide went up on the screen for about two seconds. Not a word needed to be said. They looked at the slide, went, oh yeah, she couldn't use the swing with her child for nine months while the child was in those age where you use a swing. And so every little different technique you can think of to bring jurors attention. Remember, we're used to storytelling being done in 60 minutes, sometimes 30 minutes. That's our TV timeline, right. a two and a half hour movie, is not gonna happen in a courtroom. There are too many erupt interruptions. There's too much going on. So you have to keep them interested. And so I like to grab the uh, jurors by the throat very, very quickly, whether it be opening or direct examination and start your story that grabs them, makes them go, oh my goodness, or grabs them, oh my goodness, stopping and then letting them imagine what's coming next. Give them something to look forward to. I do it on direct, I do it on cross. They know it's coming, they're interested. Uh, bad lawyers are bad storytellers. Bad lawyers have a great habit of losing the jurors' attention. They turn their back on the jurors. They fumble at their desk looking for a document or a photograph or an exhibit. Any break in the action allows a juror to think about their grocery list tonight at six o'clock. They're there as our guests, but if you give them an opportunity to daydream, particularly at four o'clock in the afternoon on the day of a jury trial, can I pick up my child on time? Can I get my dinner picked up? Can, you know, is my family waiting for me? You can't give them a reason. Mm. And so all of that play directing is important just like a play director at the end of intermission or the right after intermission, so right after a big lunch, a right. big witness, jurors are digesting their food, they're tired, they're getting droopy, uh, ending the day with a fascinating fact, just like we do on TV shows. You know, if it's a carryover TV show, it ends the first show with something, oh my goodness, I wonder what's gonna happen next. And the juror has to come back. The TV watcher has to come back for the next show because you've left this dangling, exciting piece of the story. That's my thoughts preliminarily on storytelling. I'm sure Daniel and Tony have more to say. Well, the, I guess the story of the leg being on the desk is very striking, and I'm sure that's going to stay in my memory for a long time now, for sure. <laughs> right, and that's the purpose, right? It sticks with you. Yeah, probably both jurors still remember that as well. Um, and I, I think that's, again, you you didn't probably not coincidentally use the word imagine two or three times, as Daniel talked about as well, just before that. And yeah, a big part of storytelling, I think, is uh, what's called show, don't tell. 
let let's put the pieces there for the jurors to put together themselves. But yeah, don't, don't tell me don't tell me you love me. Show me that you love me. Exactly. Don't use conclusionary language. You know, just and and get rid of the adverbs. Hmm. Um, adverbs is the lazy writer's way to write. He quickly moved out of the way. No, use an action verb. He jumped out of the way. Okay. Uh, tragically or whatever. Don't use adverbs. To the extent that you can leave them out, it's going to be a much better story. And that's exactly why you don't use facts, because if you construct your story with all facts, what's going to happen? The jury's going to create their own story. They're not going to listen to your story. And if you let them construct their own story, well, they're not going to follow what the case is really about. And that's why when you do tell a story, and I agree with obviously everything that Daniel and Jeff said, that's why that they're that's why they're instructors. And I'm, I'm I feel like I'm the student here. But, but but telling the story is so important, because if you do tell the story, that's the anchor that the juries use then when the facts, when the documents, when the witnesses testify during the actual case in chief, the your opening is your opportunity to tell the story. And, and quite frankly, when you tell the story, tell it in a way that maybe they wouldn't expect it to be heard. For example, usually when you're talking about your story and you want to sequence, right? You want to use your sequence very, very importantly. In the same way that you're sequencing your voir dire, whether you start with conduct or causation or harms and losses, that's the same way that you want to sequence your opening. You want to be able to compartmentalize your jury. They're going, to, they're going to follow your story that much better when you're sequencing your voir dire with your opening and with your evidence. So if you give them that opportunity, the, the story's all going to make sense. But what I meant by, um, because I don't want to repeat everything that, that Jeff and Daniel said, when you're telling your story, give them an opportunity to think of the story in a different way. The conduct, for example, if it's, a, if it's a trucking case, it's a truck versus auto case, when did the conduct, the bad conduct, really start? Well, it didn't start on the date of the event. Ladies and gentlemen, you would think that this story begins on July 4th, 2022, when this accident occurred or when this crash occurred. But indeed, this story begins years and years before that, when this trucking company continuously failed to monitor and screen their employees and do background checks. So that's one way to tell the story. You bring it back in time and you tell this story in a way that captures them, just like when they read stories to their children way back in time and you bring it to the beginning. And, and that's a way just so for them to understand and anchor so much better because that's, that's the goal of the story. The goal of the story is to anchor them with visuals, not, not documents. You know, I have a great expert out of North Dakota, biomechanical, and, and he has a little bit of an accent. And, and when he, he has a big accent, Tony, he has a you, big know, accent. you know who I'm talking about, right? I know who you're talking about, yeah. Yeah. Starts yeah. with an M. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when, and when, and when he, when he testifies, he talks about, about his visuals as cartoons but he does it in a, in a way that, that doesn't shock anybody, that's not disingenuous or offensive, because what he's trying to explain to you is that I created this cartoon for you to understand the story. And it just works beautifully. Introduce it. You introduce the animation and opening, not the big, not all the factual documents, and then you bring it into the into the evidentiary story. It works beautifully. Great. Well, thank you very much for sharing that too, Tony. Um, something that I guess all three of you have brought up to a greater or lesser extent is um, kind of how the jury wants to be kind of emotionally involved and get gets emotionally invested. Um, I do see some nods. That's reassuring. Um, now. Something that, especially um, Daniel mentioned, was that. Can I can I jump in here? And I apologize. Yeah, the segue is too good to pass up. <laughs> uh, Tony talked about uh, this expert from North Dakota, who has a. Uh, if I remember correctly, he's 
Polish, if I remember correctly. And he has an accent and you have an accent. So how do we, how do we, first of all, we got to recognize that there's an accent and then we got to recognize how is the viewer or the listener going to react to that accent? And there's a hierarchy in American culture of high, uh, of accents. It's no accident that, for example, in uh, Game of Thrones, you know, uh, this prequel, I forget the name of it now, all the royals have what accent? British. British. There's a reason for that, okay? Um, if you want to sound intelligent, you have what kind of accent? Uh, what kind of accent? A regal one. Yeah. And, for example, a German accent. People with German accents, we perceive them as being brighter, being smarter, being more intelligent. I remember when I started out as a brand new lawyer, as a baby lawyer, it was an explosion case, and there was a, an expert that we had hired, and he happened to be German. And the defense lawyer is asking him questions. He said, now, when did you first design um, explosions? Yeah. And he says, before or after Zivor? You know, he was very, very conscious of, he didn't want to say he designed any bombs before, but that's beside the point. What I thought was his accent, okay? So we have to pay attention to that. And this, I'll make decisions. I have this case, a trucking case, and I have a really good um, biomechanical expert who's really good. But I say, but, but he's got a Middle East, he's got a Middle Eastern background. My client is Middle Eastern. The county that I live in is uh, where McCarthy and Trump won here by, I don't know, 20, 40 points. McCarthy happens to be our congressman. This is a red county. I'm in California, which is a blue state, but I live in a red county, a very red county. Okay. So a Middle Eastern uh, uh, background, that is part of the story because my client was Middle Eastern. And a, and a trial is a contest of credibility which means we do everything we can to increase our credibility and we do everything we can to decrease the credibility of the opposing side. And one of those ways, probably the most important way, is the story that we tell. And part of that story are our characters and, our, and the way our characters express themselves, how they speak. So I, I very much pay attention to accents. So I, I couldn't pass up on that one. <laughs> when Tony mentioned the the, uh, the expert from North Dakota, and then you started speaking, I thought, okay, come on, we we, we got to call this out. <laughs> you know, it's useful to be conscious and aware of this kind of stuff. You know? Of course, yes. My, my accent isn't entirely English, but I'm also not going to offend that country because that country, the country that the remaining part of my accent is from is not associated with regality and this sort of thing. Yeah. To the untrained American ear, you sound British. It, my accent is probably 75 to 80% British, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, something you kind of um, touched upon quite heavily there as well, in terms of like attitude, um, attitude changing persuasion, which obviously is the goal of storytelling, is the source of the message. If the source is considered to be much more credible, the message is much more likely to be taken on board. And it, unfortunately, in a very red county, some experts that are people of color might just unfortunately might not be considered to be as credible, which yeah, right. fortunate sign of the times. But it does really highlight the importance of the source being the source of a message, the story be, or part of the story, um, and the effect that can have, definitely. Now, the question I was just about to ask was um, emotion and kind of like, uh, yeah, the role of the kind of like the emotion of the, ju of the jurors. You all kind of, harked, um, kind of harked back to that a bit, made mention of it. Uh, Daniel, in particular, you talked about dopamine and oxy oxytocin when we get that kind of positive. And I probably used the wrong word. Oxy it's not oxycodone. <laughs> it's one of those, the good... Good feel hormones that get released in the in the brain. Let's go. Definitely dopamine, and maybe others as well. How about that? Yeah. Um, how, do you guys consider perhaps that positive emotions are like eliciting positive emotions through the story is 
a better tactic say do you want to feel um thorough pity for your plaintiff or is feeling anger towards the defense perhaps a can or maybe can be in some cases a more effective tactic in storytelling let me jump in real quick it is um on the range of emotions uh love is not one of the most powerful ones hmm. the two most powerful emotions are anger and fear okay which means every good story needs what that we tell every good story needs a good villain and it's not a story of mistake. The only people who make mistakes in my stories are my clients or my witnesses. Everybody else betray us. Because what do we do, the typical American, what do we do when somebody makes a mistake, an error, uh, uh, a lack of judgment, a poor judgment? We forgive them. What do we do with people who betray us? We don't forgive them, <laughs> okay? So the story can never be one of negligence. It has to be a story of betrayal. So we need a good villain in every one of our stories. The villain can be the defendant. It can be the defense lawyer. It can be one of the defense experts or one of the defense witnesses, okay? But every good story needs a good villain. And the best villain in our story is the person who knew the most and cared the least. I'll say that again. The person who knew the most and cared the least. So if you can sequence and frame your story, long, I, I, I'll spend 80% of my opening statement, which by the way, guys, the, the opening statement I gave in this trial that was six weeks long that I just finished last Friday, it was two hours long. The longest opening statement I've ever given, okay? Mm. I'd like to think, maybe I'm fooling myself, uh, the jury was there with me every step of the way. But I had a good villain. I had a great villain. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so every good story needs a good villain because we got to get to anger and we got to get to fear. Well, I, I couldn't agree more because when, when you do tell the story based upon conduct, uh, I, I don't think that you go and you try and get the jury to like or love or feel empathy for your client out of the gate or else what you're doing is you're putting the emphasis on the client and not on the bad conduct. And and usually what happens, you know, Dan Dan hit the nail on the head. Usually conduct is associated with knowledge. Who had the most knowledge with regard to the conduct, it's not our client, it's not the victim, because that's why they're there, because they are innocents. And for example, in a, in a toxic tort case that, that we're working on right now, the way we're framing the story is the conduct, the decades and decades of knowledge that the villain had about this deadly chemical and the choices that they made with respect to this chemical and the choices that they left our client with, which were none. Our client didn't have a choice but to breathe the air around her home 12 to 20 times per minute, 24 hours a day for all the years of exposure, not knowing that every time she took a breath, there was a nail being driven into her coffin. That's the kind of story that you want to tell because it does create the villain. It's the choices that they made with their conduct, given the choices that the innocent victim had, which were none. Okay, um, I guess very, um, very strong feelings towards anger and fear being very good um, drivers of getting the jury on your side. I, I guess as a follow-up question, are you guys familiar with and or do you subscribe to reptile theory at all? All I know is that I get motions and lemonade entitled reptile theory. <laughs> and I, I always say to the judge, I have no problem with that. It's the golden rule. I'm not going to violate it. So I don't pay attention to it. Uh, The essence, from what I understand, and I read the book years ago, uh, the essence is you're really trying to create empathy. 
you're trying to put your listener, your viewer into the shoes of your client. You know, they don't say it that way. At least the, I don't remember the authors saying it that way. But that was the essence of what they were trying to say. So you're trying to create empathy. So, so the the so if you ask me, you ask me, do I subscribe to the reptile theory? Um, yeah, exactly. I guess like this. I don't know. Sometimes <laughs> it like work. happens by accident, right? It's like yeah, yeah. So yeah, the general principles behind the general principles behind it seem reasonable enough, even if you wouldn't say you're reading from the gospel of of reptile theory. Okay, that's a fair fair response. Yeah. Um, I guess turning to a slight, very slightly different tack. Um, have any of you guys had any challenges on recent cases with your storytelling? Like, did something turn out unexpectedly much better or worse than you may have otherwise predicted? Let me try to speak speak up since uh, I haven't in a bit. <laughs> I agree with uh, Daniel and Tony when it comes to having a bad guy be the focus. If you come too early with empathy for your client, uh, the jury thinks you're trying to get sympathy, get them angry at the conduct of the defendant or the defendant themselves before you approach uh, your own case. Uh, but I also like to think that we try to come up with some kind of branding. Uh, needless to say, I am not a big fan of our last president, but he was a brilliant brander of images uh lying ted crooked hillary mm -hmm. low energy jeb the things that stuck with these people no matter what they did that's what you heard that's what you saw when you saw them and so coming up with something to stick the defendant with this bad guy image is something that is an emotional attraction that the jurors will get stuck with and angry with. And now they're ready and willing to listen to what you've got to tell them about your client because they're already ready to be upset. I find that lawyers that try to shove the damage aspect of the case early, uh, looking for that emotional uh, grasp, the jury's not ready for it. Uh, the jury needs to be ready, which is after they're pissed off at the defendant, you're managing those kinds of emotions and you're letting them go, okay, now I'm ready to be helpful to this family because these people deserve to get punished. What can we do for this family? And if they feel like they can help a family, it's not just some random case. That's why the jurors get interested in being involved in this case. Oh, I have the ability now to help out this family. And I want to help out this family because these people have been labeled whatever they are, cutting corners, being cheap, uh, disregarding facts that are obvious, making excuses. Now you're mad. Now you're angry. And now you're ready to say, OK, what is it about this family? Uh, one of the great things that I try to get lawyers to do, particularly in wrongful death cases, is to go visit the family house. Because when you walk in and you see a home where someone has lost a loved one, there will be cues, a photograph, a trophy, a sweater, things that the clients don't tell you about. You know, they don't think that it's important, uh, this photograph from Thanksgiving five years ago that they've left on the counter or a note. Uh, those are the things that I save for a trial. I don't try to pre-prep my clients, but I ask them in front of the jury. Now, do you have anything in your living room uh, that is a reminder of your lost husband? I already know that it's the photo. I already know it's the little train set they made for the grandchild. Those are the things that will grab at the heartstrings of a witness who's not ready you know, didn't know you knew that. And that's when they open themselves up to connect to their own jury. Because the juries all have those little things at their own houses. And when they hear a client talk about it, who was not overly prepared, not prepped too much, uh, it's like you, you catch them. 
and it leaves them in a position where they want to tell a really good story about that object. And that story now connects this jury to them. And one of the things that we did this past week in class, which I think that is becoming much more important for lawyers in storytelling, is that we're becoming a very, very diverse country. And there are people sitting on juries from every country, every ethnic background, cultural background, and they all don't think like, you know, the white American world that we grew up in. Everything comes from their own tribal understanding. And having us as lawyers learn what it is about that ethnic background, learning what may approach or connect with them, uh, is critically important. And I'll give a short example if I can. I had a case where a young boy was burned in a substation. His two best friends uh, all te both testified against him and both said that the boy had dared them that he would go into the substation. And they were all three young black children at a not very nice neighborhood. And we focus group because I was worried that the two best friends were gonna testify against the plaintiff. And we had 50 jurors in our focus group, 25 whites and 25 blacks. The 25 black focus group jurors all said 25 out of 25 that the two boys were lying and they were covering their ass because they weren't supposed to be near the substation. The 25 whites all said that the boy was contributory negligent and should not have been in the substation. I've never had it contrasted so starkly. 25 out of 25 said one thing and 25 out of 25 said the other. And that's cultural. And it's quite frankly, I don't understand it, but that cultural understanding of a boy covering his ass, and I'm sure that's what you studied. You know, the different types of things as a psychologist learning how people look at things. And now our jurors are filled with people from all over the world who have moved to the United States. They sit on our juries and they think differently than the, we do. Quite frankly, they do. And we have to learn it because storytelling to them is a different storytelling than someone else. And when you have a mixture in your panel, you got to be able to do it multiple different ways to connect. Don't know if I answered that question, but I had to say that. Well, Jeff, that is so, so poignant and so important. Sorry, I have, I have a cat who wants to join the uh, the video. Bring, bring the cat you, in. If you see my arms moving, it's because I keep trying to hold, I'm trying to hold them at bay. But, but you know, I, I, uh, I, along with Ben Crump, represented the estate of George Floyd. And, and before, you know, we, we negotiated that settlement with, with, the state of, uh, with the city of Minneapolis, we engaged in focus groups and mock trials all over the country to get different attitudes and feelings that, that people would have. And it was amazing how that cultural issue came into play here, because when there was a black juror, either on our mock trial or our focus group, they were able to dissect and know exactly what was happening, whereas the white or the non-black juror would take a much different approach. And believe it or not, the whites were friendlier to our case than black jurors were with regard to what the outcome was. Yeah, and, and that cultural difference is really hard for us. You know, we're raised in a certain culture. I am, yeah. and you are, and I'm sure they're different. You may be in Chicago, I may be Virginia Beach, but it's our religious upbringing, the people that we hang out with, and people look at things totally differently. Uh, by the way, what you did in the George Floyd case has changed America, really not just what happened to George Floyd, but the resolution uh, that you all were able to bring to uh, his family has changed all cases, uh, not just those kinds of police misconduct cases, but all cases. And it was a cataclysmic shifting of ideas and thoughts about the police 
And every one of us have known that blacks have been mistreated uh, by law enforcement for years, particularly in the South. And now we could put a label on it. And George Floyd's life, unfortunately, uh, has made that a part of our culture now. Yeah. And having to learn how to do that, uh, you know, whether it's Daniel's Middle Eastern uh, accent, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, Middle Eastern accent to some people means one thing and to someone else it means something else. And how we as lawyers package that so that the jurors can accept it and understand it without bad connotation or feel it very warmly as, oh, look what their life is like. That's why in these death cases, different family members have different roles in different cultures. And so a loss of a father, a loss of a mother, a loss of a daughter, they all mean something differently. And too many lawyers think, oh, everybody's the same. They're just jurors, but they're not. They're all jurors who come into the courtroom with their own suitcase of baggage and their own views of the world. And sometimes they just don't listen to us. I mean, there's nothing worse for me to talk to a lawyer who had a hung jury that was 11 to one because one juror couldn't get it out of their head that that's not how we do it. That's not how it happens on my side of the tracks. Uh, and learning how to tell a story to different people is really important using analogies that are important or relevant to their culture. Uh, unfortunately, this was the second year that my law students didn't know anything about Perry Mason. Wow. Right? We grew up with Perry Mason. I have a painting in my office of Perry Mason's office. Hmm. Uh, none of my students knew the hell he, who he was. And I told them all that they will all get an F at the end of the semester unless they can come to class and tell me about one episode of Perry Mason. Because they just didn't know. And imagine that. These are law students whose age is such that they just don't know. Uh, last, this week in class, I was talking about the cross-examinations in the O.J. Simpson case by F. Lee Bailey on Furman, the uh, lying police officer who had never used the N-word. None of my law students had been born when the OJ trial happened. Wow. And I went, wow, wow, how, how could that be? And so, you know, the analogies that we use in the, for our stories sometimes don't, you know, I was glad to hear Daniel use Game of Thrones, but, you know, some people don't watch Game of Thrones. And to think that some of these jurors didn't know about, or some of my students didn't know about OJ uh was shocking shocking and so we we have to step up our game to learn culture and learn about other people's cultures sorry i talked too long pop culture pop culture right pop culture yes jeff can i offer something for your consideration yes um words matter right and i told you i'm a wordsmith uh not necessarily by choice but the way i grew up um I told you that English was not my first language. So I listen to words all the time. And in wrongful death cases, when I hear people say they lost a loved one, they didn't lose that person. That person didn't fall out of their pocket and they lost that person. That person was killed, was taken away from the family. They didn't, my clients didn't lose their dad. They didn't lose their brother. Okay. They didn't fall out of their pocket. He was taken from him. He was killed by the defendant's choices, the defendant's bad choices. Uh, so it's always, we're always painting a picture, whether it be with our gestures, whether our choice of words, the inflection in our voice, all of those things. We get a chance to frame the case. When I hear we lose somebody, that's a mistake. I don't want mistakes in my case by the defendant. It's a betrayal story from the get-go. Their choices led to the killing of this person. Right. So anyway, I, I, again, I'm too literal. I'm too anal about these kinds of things. You know, but I, I listen to words all the time. When I was a kid growing up, 
I didn't understand why people would say rush hour when all the cars were stopped and nobody was moving. People would say hard rock. And in my mind, I saw a stone that was in the ground as opposed to music. So it was two-stage learning. I had to understand that. So I, I listened to words all the time. And, uh, and I probably overanalyze them, but I can't help myself. It's, I'm a product of my upbringing. <laughs> you know? okay. Well, coming from Chicago, and I'm going to look at traffic always as slow hour or stop hour. I'm never going to look at it as rush hour again. Yeah. Or I was growing up, and I'd see, I, I wanted to fit in. My, my dad never went to school. My dad was illiterate. Okay. My mom had a third grade education. Uh, so I learned to, I lived in labor camps. I lived, for example, uh, Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, that labor camp. I lived in that labor camp growing up. Okay. So I learned to, I learned uh, the idioms in, in English. Do you say you ride in a plane or on a plane? You get in a car or on a car? See, those kind of language things. That's not grammatical um, rules for that. It's the way Americans, we Americans think in containers. So anyway, I wanted to fit in, right? So I would see the name Santa Monica, Sacramento, San Jose, San Francisco. And I would pronounce it that way, right? And all of my classmates would look at me like, so I had to teach myself to say Santa Monica, San Jose. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I wouldn't fit in which meant I'm not a member of the tribe. And that's what we're trying to do when we do jury trials. What we're trying to do is we're trying to build a tribe. The tribe is the jury. By the end of the trial, we want to be accepted as a member of the tribe. And more than that, we want to be perceived and accepted as the de facto leader of that tribe. So when I ask them for $73.7 million, they give it to me. Okay. <laughs> So the villains in our case, for example, in a 1983 case, a police misconduct case, um, the cops are members of the tribe. So how do we, and we don't kill people in our tribe. We don't talk crap about our tribe. I can talk crap about my family members, but nobody outside the family can do that. Mm -hmm. okay? It's just sociometry, basic sociometry. So we're always trying to build a tribe. So what we do is the cop starts out in a 1983 case as a member of the tribe, because none of those folks on the jury, none of them have really had a bad experience with a cop, otherwise they wouldn't be seated there. None of them are convicted felons. Mm -hmm. So how do we win a 1983 case? We drive the cop out of the, the tribe. How do we do that? We show he's a rogue cop. He's a lying you know, person. He, that's how we do it. Then we can kill them. We only kill people outside our tribe. We don't kill people in our tribe. So anyway, I, I wanted to offer that to you that that's ultimately what we do is we're forming a tribe and we want to be members. We want to be accepted as members of that tribe. The defendant or the defense lawyer or the defense expert or the defense witness cannot be a member of that tribe. Otherwise, we can't kill them. And at the end of the, our story, we want to kill them. When I say we, us, the jurors, including myself, want to do that. Mm. Obviously, that's oversimplified, but that's the way my simple mind thinks. Sure, yeah, that comes back to like what all of you guys have talked about in terms of like yeah, creating that villain, getting the anger towards them. The villain is part of the outgroup, not one of us. Yeah, it, yeah. exactly. Cool. Uh, I have one final question. Uh, what about foreshadowing a, the positive outcome? Is this something that you um, is this something you introduce early, late, at all, etc.? Are there different? Uh, does it change across different cases as well? Yeah, different cases call for different story structure, right? Mm -hmm. uh, most cases we introduce the plaintiff, or at least I do, at the end because I don't want them to be the focus of the case. Because if they're the focus of the case, our jurors are second guessing them. We don't want them. We don't want them second guess. So we don't want the narrative spotlight on the choices made by the plaintiffs. It's on the defense, right? So most of the time, not all the time, 
we introduce the defendants first or the you know the villain first and again we don't we do it with their choices like you know tony said their, their conduct what they did wrong what they the, we back chain it we don't necessarily start the story at the time of the incident we might want a nice emotional hook we started then but as tony said then we say but our story doesn't start there and then when you're telling the story in the courtroom you have to keep in mind the theater part of it we read from left to right so because we're facing our audience we say we use our left and we say here's where the story started it started here and it went there but the jurors are looking at us it's the mirror <laughs> image of it right so we have to train ourselves that our timeline starts over there on to our right not to our left and goes that way okay so just all this is part of storytelling it's not just the words it's not just the inflection it's our positioning in the courtroom so then we say uh we call it back chain we go back our story starts and then we don't necessarily use a date uh, us lawyers tend to you say the, the date of the wreck it was july 10th 2010 and we will say it a hundred times during the trial when you say july 10th 2017 there's no image in your head of that and our brain thinks in images what does what i would offer to you is this is you talk about landmarks it was a week after fourth of july Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a mouse stirred. Okay. So two weeks before Thanksgiving, uh, it was two days before St. Patrick's Day. Now the brain is easier for us to follow, and we can transport our listener to the scene. Not using the date or calling a, a character Mr. Smith. When I say Mr. Smith to you, most of us are not going to have an image of Mr. Smith. But if I say the baker, the teacher, the, the garbage truck driver, the farm worker, you're going to have an image in your head. So I rarely call them by their names. You know, going back to, I think it was uh, Jeff's point about branding, okay? not necessarily negative branding like Trump did, you know, but you give them a label. And that way they remember who it is because they're not going to have an image of Mr. Jones. But they're going to have an image of the drunk truck driver. Yeah, names are ridiculous. I hate it when people use names. I hate it when they use street names. Jurors don't remember any of that. They want to know it's the, the baker, the guy by the bush. Yes. That's how, that's how they remember who these people are. Sometimes I will give them a photograph of the baker in opening statement. And then when I get back up in closing, I just show them the photograph this was the baker or whatever we've labeled them and they go oh yeah i remember him uh, that's why i like to take pictures of witnesses at depositions so i have 11 by 14 picture of the witness that i can say remember when this guy spoke he was the baker and they go oh yeah yeah, yeah. i remember him the guy in the green jacket whatever it is those labels are a lot better than names jurors won't remember names for any amount of time period don't know if that answers our questions, though. Yeah, I don't know question if I answered the question think, either. Yeah. <laughs> the question you asked had to do with uh, something that? else that both Daniel and I avoided. Yep. Uh, what about foreshadowing a positive outcome? Was the question? Oh. Uh, <laughs> well, a positive outcome in a case, you know, we want the jury to find that we want to help this family. Hmm. And so, how do you help this family? So, I use numbers in my opening. Uh, I have found. Uh, after 220 jury trials, if you leave to a jury a number without giving them a suggestion, they're going to do the wrong thing. But if you give them a number, which is the positive outcome, you can help this family how by doing this. Money is a poor substitute for this family's uh, what's gone or happened to them or what's happened to the plaintiff, but it's all the law allows us to do. And if you do that, uh, this is going to be a verdict that lasts a lifetime. We can I always say we can't come back here five years, 10 years, 20 years from now and say that wasn't enough. I still have this problem. This is their only day in court. 
this is what you're supposed to do to help this family, and this is how you do it. That's a positive outcome on what we do. My name is Dr. Christopher Bridges. I'm a behavioral scientist at Jury Analyst with experience in market research, data analytics, and survey design. I hold a PhD in psychology from the University of Western Australia, and I'm an internationally recognized expert in the field of behavioral statistics and research design. I have over 10 years experience in academia and working as a statistician internationally, and I've published 39 peer-reviewed papers to date, and I'm happily based in California. In the courtroom, we rely on compelling evidence often rooted in the detailed work of scientists. That's why I'm introducing Science of Justice. This podcast by Jury Analyst isn't just legal chatter. It's a deep dive into law and science using real science, real data, and real time. The team at Science of Justice stands for integrity. They break down complex scientific principles to serve those wronged or injured, making it accessible for lawyers and other justice seekers. So now, let's really up your game and embrace some real evidence. Say goodbye to following the herd and start practicing law based on facts. You got to check out now the Science of Justice podcast.